number one, at any moment, anything can change, right? You can go from having the worst day to the best day or put some perspective on that. And then the next thing is that relatively small amounts of effort at the right time can absolutely change the trajectory of your life or anybody else around you. And I also think about that kid quite a bit, even in today's life, especially when I see acts of service going on Mm -hmm. and it's emotional. I wonder what he's up to now, right? I hope he's living up to his potential, just like my parents hoped that I was living up to my potential. And it just makes me, when I reflect on that, I want to do right for myself. I want to do right for others. And I want to continue to work hard so that I am in the right place at the right time to make the most impact for others. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Ted Burgess, a green tech executive with 10 years of experience in energy efficiency, storage, and solar. He has led high-performing teams in both B2B and B2C, which have transformed competitive landscapes and public policy. I met Ted at Solar City, where he was an amazing leader, so amazing, in fact, that they literally sent him all over the country to help build out markets throughout the nation. As strategic, smart, and analytical as he is compassionate, fun, and empathetic, Ted is that rare blend of leader that you don't often see. On the show, he shares why the power of consistency has been such a central theme in his life, what calendar blocking advice he's borrowed from Warren Buffett, and what mental checklist he uses to identify strong leaders. We also learn why he immerses himself so deeply into the technology of any company he joins, why building alliances with key leaders is so vital, and what he's learned about promoting the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Ted also lets us in on a special place that he's able to think more clearly thanks to zero distractions, why he avoids being emotionally distracted by things that are temporary, and why he's adopted the habit of whiteboarding to help keep him performing at an optimal level. Early in the show, Ted shares a heartwarming story about a chance event he had in the ocean at the age of 16. This event led him to save the lives of a young boy and his father earning him a National Honor Medal, and giving him the lifelong reminder to constantly strive to reach his fullest potential. I absolutely love this conversation, and I'm so excited to share it with you. I really hope you enjoy it, and I hope you get a ton of value out of these insights and others on another episode of Inside Out. All right, Ted Virgis, I am absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. I can't say enough good things about you. We had the opportunity to meet uh, during our Solar City days, yep. and you were always somebody that came up in conversation as being an absolutely extraordinary leader. I know that they managed to get you to move around the country because <laughs> you were so good. And I'm just anxious to get started and dive in and learn all about everything you've done since 
the times that we've got a chance to work together, but also exploring what you did prior. I know you were at REC, mm-hmm. you were a circle of champion there, yep. you know, way back when you were an Eagle scout. So, sure. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was just telling you, I think you're, you're an overachiever, aren't you? But the funny thing is when I got started, the first mission and goal I had in, in the project I was working on was to put together a playbook for new managers and new leaders getting started. And part of that was the video series on a lot of the components that we felt were critical to the success of leaders at Solar City, mm-hmm. and your name was immediately bubbled up as somebody that I should get on camera talking about what you're doing to help build the organizations you've built. That's really when we first, I think, started connecting and, and getting to know each other. And ever since then, I've always been fascinated by your approach. You're a highly strategic, very thoughtful leader. You don't go into anything without really giving it the careful thought and planning necessary to achieve success. And also you care about your team and you care about not only them as human beings, but you care about the success that they're going to have with the company that they're with and that they're actually performing at the level that they're capable of performing. So to get started, you know, just so we could kind of get a a general idea of, of your background, why don't you share your story, what you've done and kind of leading up to today, what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. And I have to say like a world-class training program that you built out at, at Solar City. It was so helpful for us as a team. And it was just absolutely incredible to watch other leaders grow, to watch our teams grow under the programs that you put together. So can't thank you enough. I mean, it made our jobs really easy, made, made me look really good. <laughs> well, I pre- well, I appreciate your role in, in helping with it. So no, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, man. So tell me about Ted. Yeah. How far back you want me to go? I mean, prior to Eagle Scouts, for, for sure. sure. <laughs> well, what made you do Eagle Scout? I mean, I really do. I say that and I really do have an immense amount of respect for that because I know it takes a lot of time and dedication. And also it as a human being, it may sound kind of weird, but I feel like somebody that's gone to the the, the point of being an Eagle Scout and, and preparing and if there's something that goes down, I want to be with you because you're going to be able to start the fire. You're going to be able to be my guide. And When you think about leadership at its core foundation, a leader is somebody that others want to follow. And so when we're going back thousands and thousands of years, you want to follow somebody that's going to be able to guide you in the right direction, whether that's to safety, out of harm's way, up a mountain, down a mountain, whatever the case may be. And I think that as an Eagle Scout and somebody that's kind of moved up the ranks of being a Boy Scout and what what have you, is somebody that cares deeply about nature, that cares deeply about being self-sufficient. And I think that's a theme that's run throughout your life in terms of getting in renewables, but I'll let you tell your story. I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. No, absolutely. I appreciate that. So I was born in Northern California in Berkeley, grew up there pretty much my whole life. Uh, same, My parents still live in the same house that we grew up in. So a lot of consistency there, which I think has pulled through into my adult life as, as one of those facets that I was raised under and see a lot of the benefits of it, which is, which is consistency. But grew up in the Bay Area, just 60 miles east of San Francisco, a little town called Alamo, which has grown significantly since then. And I was a little guy growing up. And I always say that that was a, a good opportunity for me to like learn how to build a personality, right? Because I wasn't a super jock. I wasn't a super athlete or anything like that. So I really had to focus a little bit more inward. You know, when you're a sophomore in high school and you're you're 98 pounds, what are you going to do, right? You got to focus in on kind of what you're all about. And then fortunately, I had a growth spurt and just kind of shot up from there and got to competitively surf in college and things like that. But while I was uh, 11, 12, 13, that's when I was really working on the stuff in the Boy Scouts. And so when I got my Eagle Scout award, I was 13, which is, it was six days after I turned 13, which is pretty much the youngest that you can get. I was going to say, is that normal? Yep. No, okay. it's, it was, it was 
a, it was freakish, but my father was very involved in the Boy Scouts with me, was very focused on kind of building leaders and leadership. And that's uh, something that has always been deeply instilled in me. And, and I think even a lot of the things that folks don't know about the Boy Scouts, you know, is that uh, uh, it's not just, um, it's, it's, it's not just running around in the woods, you know, they, the merit badges that they have are focused on building well-rounded leaders in the right. space. So, you know, some of the merit badges might be music or they might be, you know, citizenship or, or things like that, learning about the planet itself and, and different countries and building skill sets that can apply to all aspects of life. And it's also highly regimented. How you move up in the ranks, it's almost like a checklist. And so these checklists kind of throughout my life, you just kind of are able to look at the older kids or look at people that are successful and build on that, right? And learn how to do it faster, better, et cetera, if that's what makes you happy. So I got to do that. Also through the Boy Scouts, I I got my first job. I was a camp counselor on Catalina Island out here as a lifeguard, taught sailing, a lot of those things. And that was a, a really good opportunity for me to grow as well, to kind of put myself literally on a desert island, right? And yeah. uh, and work amongst like-minded individuals and went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. So kept it pretty close to home in, in California. And that was a great experience working a lot. You know, the engineering program there is phenomenal. I was on the business side of things, which is also a great program there. And they really integrate the different departments, whether it's uh, taking agricultural business classes or taking, you know, accounting or working with engineers on projects. You learn how to work with different minds that are all great at what they do. And then after I left Cal Poly, I, you know, was passionate about the environment. I was passionate about environmental science. That was my concentration within the business business major and joined a little company called REC Solar, which at the time was the largest residential solar installer mm-hmm. in the country. This is back in 08, 09. I think we had about 300 employees, right? Wow. We were doing, you know, like a couple thousand early systems days. a year. Early days, very, very early cool. days. Yeah. I think we had a couple thousand systems actually in total mm-hmm. at that time or the largest in the country. And that was a great experience. You know, I was still eating kind of hand to mouth. It was still the college days, right? Eating ramen and hitting the phones. And basically they put a phone in front of me and there was a little bullpen of us that were just figuring out the industry. Okay. So it was over the phone. Yeah, you got it. Yep. So we were just, you know, they put a phone in front of me and said, when it rings, pick it up. And that's what I did, you know, and I answered all the questions wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, But it was a great learning experience. It was, it was a crash course in solar. You Um, learn by doing. Totally. That's Cal Poly's motto. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Learn by doing. So lots of hands-on experience there. And uh, within a year I was promoted and they moved me up to Sacramento, which was a phenomenal experience to get to move out into the field. And when I moved up there, I was still kind of bootstrapping my life. You know, I was raised in a great family and everything like that. But once I graduated college, they kind of said, hey, you're out on your own now. Good luck. Right. And I thought that was a really good experience for me. You know, I lived in, for those who aren't familiar, I lived in section eight housing because I wasn't making any money right off the bat. I was essentially in the projects for almost a year, right? That was a really good experience for me to not see what I had grown up in in the little town in the the East Bay area, not see, you know, what I had seen at college, see an entirely different aspect of our communities and 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 what people go through and perspective, right? Absolutely. And and I was in that position for just long enough to say I know what I want to do now. I want to continue the renewable energy side because that's super important to me, just mm-hmm. the the environmental aspect, the being a good global citizen aspect. And I also want to make sure that I'm comfortable financially and stable. And those two things between the global citizenship and ensuring that I have consistency, financial security for myself is really, that's always been at my core, essentially, for, for quite some time. And that's what kind of launched me into Solar City, launched me into being as passionate about sales as I was, as, as I said, you know what, there's one way for me to get out of this current position that I'm in, which is just sell like heck. 
you yeah. know, and, and get out there and do it. And so start looking again at what the older folks were doing, what the folks that were really good at what they were doing were doing. And I just beat it up. I worked 24 seven. I was uh, weekends, evenings, whatever, and just kind of made it happen. And then I think at one point I had 80% market share in, in the Valley, wow. uh, just myself as Solar City was coming up. And I, I think a few people took notice, uh, one of which being Jesse Rains, one of our right. uh, mutual friends there from Solar City. And he brought me over to Solar City as a regional sales manager and moved me down to San Jose from Sacramento. And that was a great experience to be kind of, you know, Silicon Valley is, is at the forefront of many things. And I think the clean tech revolution is one of those things as well. And then after that, Jesse brought me down to Southern California and got the opportunity to bolster up some of our sales efforts down here. And then after that, got launched out to the East Coast to kind of fire up the Mid-Atlantic division that was uh, at, it, at its core. I don't think the renewable energy industry had really focused on Maryland, Delaware. As, as, Untapped, right? Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, that's when we started working together really well. And that's when we really launched that market to just the absolute beast that it was. And after the Tesla acquisition, I moved into the HVAC space, air filtration. What a lot of people don't know is that about 40% of buildings energy envelope, a commercial building, a skyscraper or something like that, 40% of its total power consumption comes from HVAC, right. heating and air conditioning. So if you want to make the biggest impact on carbon emissions as you possibly can, that's a great place to focus. And so now my company and Verid were focused on reducing those emissions by 30 to 40% within those buildings. So we're saving a skyscraper 15% on its total energy bill, essentially. Wow. And not just its bill, but also its emissions. And while we're doing that, we're also focused on indoor air quality. We spend about 92% of our entire lives indoors. So, you know, if you live to be, yeah. So if you live to be 80, you know, you spent 71, 72 years inside, right? So if the air quality is not good, that has a bigger impact on your life as opposed to eating habits, as opposed to what you do for exercise. I mean, it has as major, major impact is air quality. And so you look at asthma, you look at a lot of the cancers that come up and things like that. If you can improve indoor air quality for people by removing formaldehyde, which gets emitted from all furniture and, and things like that, you're not only helping the environment, you're helping out individuals as well. So really passionate about what we're doing at Inverid right now. It's, it's been very exciting with working with LEED getting lead points for buildings and things like that. And that's it's kind of where we are now. We've, we've been on a massive growth trajectory over the past three years there and really seeing global recognition across the board in terms of deployment of our systems. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. And so much of it is, I'm sure, filled with insights. And sure. so the nature of this show, as you know, is it's all about insights. It's all about those moments that we have in life that if you look back and reflect, you could say that was a defining moment in my life. That was a moment where I had the light bulb go off, where I had the realization, the deep understanding, the something that clicked, that connected, and that really set me on a trajectory. And hearing you talk, it sounds like you know there's been a lot of insights that have happened throughout your life that have both helped you in your career, that have helped guided the decisions you've made in your career. I'm sure both personally and professionally, insights have helped you achieve the success you've achieved. As you look back and reflect, what are some insights that you've had that stand out? I think tough times build strong leaders, right? And so you can't truly lead a team or others without having at least some relational experience. It doesn't have to be the same experience by any means, but you have to be able to relate to what those on your team have, have seen in the past. And there's been a few moments in my life where it's just like, I'll never forget that instant moment. Right. And I think one of those moments is when I was 16, I, you know, my parents were hammering on me for, for grades and college applications and things like that. 
And sure enough, they kind of threw me outside to, to go surfing. We were on vacation on the central coast. And that day, you know, I was just having, a, I was bummed out. You know, I was, I was, my parents were, had been on top of me and stuff like that. And I was out surfing. And then all of a sudden I, I looked up at the pier and there was a rip current going by. And I was like, okay, well, we see that when we're surfing, right? It just happens. But at that moment, an eight-year-old boy was getting swept out underneath the pier, fully clothed, getting banged up amongst the pylons and things like that. Wow. And it was kind of one of those moments where you're not sure what's going to happen next. You know, can you help? Can you not help? Like what's going on? So I felt as though I was in a position to help. And so I went after, went after him right as I got to him, he went under the water. So I had to jump off my board, dive down, grab him, pull him up, look back at the beach. And his dad is coming out also a non-swimmer. So both of these folks were complete non-swimmers. And, you know, I was only 16 at the time and sure enough, he got swept into the, the rip current as well. So here I am surfboard kid on the board, barely conscious. And now I've got dad to work with as well. And so I grab dad, kind of get him situated on the board. And I just kind of post up behind the board and just kind of start kicking. Right. Mm. We get back to the beach and, you know, kids passed out on the sand. We flagged down the lifeguard tower. They come over. As I was hiking back up, my mom was coming to pick me up and some guy walks by and goes, you're a hero. And I was like, look, man, I was just surfing, you know, but it was one of those moments where my mom basically smacked me upside the head and said, look, this is what we get upset at is you're not fulfilling your potential. Like You can do amazing things, but sometimes you hold yourself back, right? You just don't act when you're supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me, number one, because it had been such a bad day for me. And then number two is we saved two lives that day, right? Things can change on a dime, but you have to right place, right time, right perspective, right? And there's those moments that I think everybody has, whether they're magnanimous or not, where you can recognize that that's where kind of certain parts of your life will change forever. And I was fortunate enough to be on it. They gave me a national honor medal for that. Wow, like really? That. So that was, it was very exciting. Walk me through the the, yeah. the kind of your parents' comments yep. and, and how that impacted you or affected you at the time, but then also carry that through going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I, I think I was still in shock. I mean, sure. you're, you know, the blood kind of flows out of your face and arms after it's all over and you kind of get a little shaky. But when my mom said, hey, you're not fulfilling your potential really made me recognize that number one, at any moment, anything can change, right? You can go from having the worst day to the best day or put some perspective on that. And then the next thing is that relatively small amounts of effort at the right time can absolutely change the trajectory of your life or anybody else around you. And I also think about that kid quite a bit, even in today's life, especially when I see acts of service going on mm -hmm. and it's emotional. I wonder what he's up to now, right? I hope he's living up to his potential, right? Just like my parents hope that I was living up to my yeah. potential. And it just makes me, when I reflect on that, I want to do right for myself. I want to do right for others. And I want to continue to work hard so that I am in the right place at the right time to make the most impact for others. And I think that's really what I think about. And you're right. Sometimes it's just a small thing that can make the biggest difference. And the other thing that stands out is what you said is living up to your potential. We only have one life and you never know when your time is up. You never know if you go swimming in the ocean and that's the last time you did anything or if you're driving and a horrible thing could change your life and scar you or your family forever. And if you're not living every day to the fullest, that's not good. That's missing out on the gift that we're all given because we are all miracles. The fact that we even exist is way more unlikely than winning the lottery. And yet 
there are a lot of people who don't treat life as a gift and it's sad. And mm -hmm. so I think that's a really great lesson that you learned early on in life. As you look forward and you look at your career, you strike me as somebody that really takes whatever work you're doing incredibly serious. And when I say that, what I mean is you're not going to go halfway. You're going to go all in. And it's not all in like, oh, I'm going to work as hard as I can because it's great to work as hard as you can, but you're also incredibly smart. And that's one of the words that I've heard a lot of people say when they talk about you. Oh, Ted Burgess is super bright, super smart guy, very strategic, very thoughtful, looks at things with the right kind of mindset. And I'm curious how that came about, how you approach leadership, how you approach making sure that whenever you take on a new responsibility, a new job, what's your process? Like, how do you go about that? Yeah, I think taking on a new job, if you're serious about the work that you do, and I appreciate all those compliments, by the way, but I think uh, taking, taking on a new job is probably one of the most challenging things because you are throwing yourself into different culture, different processes different product in many cases, your whole life is changing because if you are truly invested in the work that you do, your life looks very differently all of a sudden, right? If, if your job is your life, then you have essentially lost one identity and you're moving into a new identity. And so embracing that, it really requires a high level of commitment. And I think a few things that I do is I immerse myself deeply into the technology. I don't think as a leader or as a salesperson, or even as an engineer, you have to understand everything but you do have to understand it well enough to explain it to somebody else, right? And I think there's there's a big difference there. There's a big nuance behind that is you have to be able to talk about the product, talk about the vision, talk about everything at this company in a way that inspires others, makes them excited, answers all their pressing questions, does it accurately, does it truthfully, does it with honor. And if you're fully vested in it, your life looks very differently than it did the day before you join that company, because you now have essentially a new identity. And perhaps I take that a little bit too far. You know, I'm, I'm not married, no kids, no anything, right? You know, but um, uh, I've really focused on getting my place to where I feel as though my breadth of knowledge is sufficient so that when I do make those next steps in my life, that there are certain milestones that I can either pass on to others or talk about things to my friends, my family that they're proud of as well, right? So I think that's joining new companies. That's honestly, every time I do it, it's terrifying. I make a lot of fast business decisions and strategic business decisions, but that's a personal decision, right? Joining a new company. And uh, those personal decisions, I think are one of those things that, that, you know, strike a little bit of fear in me that to get me to jump because it is so much ingrained as, as part of my lifestyle, it is always a much bigger leap than I, I expect it to be. Yeah, no, and and you're so spot on on how important it is to immerse yourself. And to your point, it's not to gain mastery of every single piece of technology or every single process that exists within that company, but you should be able to explain it, articulate kind of the concepts and thinking behind it and have a enough of an understanding to be able to make decisions based upon your knowledge set and when you do that and you kind of gain this knowledge, you say you make decisions quickly. What is your method or approach to making sure you're making the right decisions? Because you are fairly new. So it's like always that, it's always that fine line between wanting to be the new guy making the right decision or the new guy who doesn't know what he's doing, making the wrong decision. And so how do you find that balance? It's a few things. Number one is I, I think I kind of take a little bit more of the Warren Buffett approach where I block calendar time aggressively for myself. 
right? Whether that be expanding or, or replying to emails in clusters so that I'm not constantly checking my phone. I'm not constantly answering mm. one-offs. I'm calendar blocking it. So I do it all at once. Typically a little bit later in the day, I let it build up and then just bang through it as fast as possible. But I think I, I block time. And I, I used to tell my teams on the East Coast, especially because they were all so new and we were growing so quickly. If somebody was having a rough month or wasn't quite up to speed yet, I said I would always say, look, we're, we're managing or we're selling or we're leading for tomorrow. We're not managing for today. And I think having that long-term approach, especially in kind of a capitalist environment, is very important because very easily we get focused in on the quarterly results or, or whatever your metrics are. And uh, we cut ourselves short in terms of the adventure that we could truly be on if we're focused on the long-term. And so that required some restraint on my part because you obviously need to hold others accountable to their results and make sure that everything's in place. But if you do that kind of checklist, do you have the right people in the positions? Do they have the right skill sets and training? Are you providing them enough support and in the right way? What do people need at the time that they need it? If you're doing all those things appropriately, then you can start managing for tomorrow because there's other environmental aspects that you can't control regardless of whether you're the best manager on the planet, right? Yeah. And I, I think your first point about setting that time aside for yourself yep. will allow you to think about all the things that you just mentioned. You know, Do you have the right people? And like, start to evaluate and do the things necessary to make the decisions in the right way. And also having the restraint, I think, is super important. And I think a good leader is somebody that does have the composure and the ability to be patient when they need to be patient but also act swiftly when they need to act swiftly. Getting back into kind of the core concept of this show and to insights, you shared so much in your story and I kind of want to dive back into that realm. What points in your career stand out as pivot points or other insightful moments that when you look back, you say like, that was the time where I decided I want to do renewables. You mentioned it, you know, and that's just an example, but I'm sure there's others. What other insights or pivot points stand out as you look back and, and reflect on your career and, and life? It's funny when I think about the, when you bring up insights and pivot points in my life, my mind typically first goes to either an achievement that's very memorable to me or a person. And that could be Mrs. John's in my senior year of high school where, you know, I took AP environmental science because I thought it would be interesting. And I got a five on the AP test and Mrs. John's was right there with us the entire time, super passionate about the environment, but scientifically so, right? And very focused on on why things happen downstream. And, and so I think about Mrs. John's or I think about Cal Poly, which let me shape my own curriculum within the business school because at the time there wasn't really an environmental concentration. And so I met with with the dean of the College of Business and, and they enabled me to kind of shape my own curriculum around soil science, around That's cool. physics and things like that, right? So instead of taking bowling as a as a, you know my extracurricular credits, <laughs> I was taking physics, right? Wow. Like, kind of kind of annoying, but <laughs> <laughs> you have your whole life to bowl. I think you know, the fact exactly. that you were taking it seriously is yeah. is just a testament to who you are, and especially at a young age, that is rare because uh, a lot of people sure. would do the the bowling or some other quote unquote <laughs> you know fun elective or non core curriculum. But the fact that you were doing that at, at that age is, is impressive. Why, why do you think that is? Have you always been, you were uh, small as a child, which, yep. you know, for, for, if you're not looking at the video right now, you'll see he's not, he's not small now. How tall are you now? Six, four. Yeah. <laughs> Six, four. So you might've been small as a kid, but you definitely filled out. Yep. What uh, I'm, I'm curious, 
your childhood, it sounds mm-hmm. to me like you had a, a fairly good childhood oh, yeah. based on what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you lived in the the, the projects, it was sort of this eye-opening, wow, this, mm-hmm. is, this is how others live. That sounds like probably a pr- moment of perspective and a moment of, wow, I'm pretty fortunate to have had what I've had in my life. Yep. I'm curious as a child, did Eagle, you know, became an Eagle Scout and then took college seriously. Has that always been your, have you ever been the type to to goof off or have you always been more the type to kind of actually take the knowledge that's being provided and, and take it seriously? I think my parents had me on a on a pretty strict regiment, which was uh, you want to have those moments of rebelliousness. And I think they gave me a, a, a good leash to do that. I think I've been more mild mannered than most. My father was kind of the strong, silent type. I mean, he does better just giving you a look than he does saying anything. Mm. And, and you've got to respect- it's powerful, by the way. Yeah. You've got to respect somebody with that level of restraint. Right. He was a, a pretty amazing uh, businessman and individual as well. And my mother was a teacher. And so she always had a close eye on us because she she taught at the high school that I went to and things like that, but also let us live our lives. Right. My sister and I. So my parents took a very thoughtful approach to parenting when they had kids. They wanted to be able to give them what they thought was the best path to, to success. And, and my parents always said, our goal raising you was to be old and on the sidelines, just clapping our hands and saying, good job. Yeah. Th- hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, no, it yeah. does. I'm actually kind of curious. Your father, what did you learn from him as a role model and as an example, as somebody that was successful in business? So my dad did corporate America. He was a, an executive at CBS and Sony, but he was a creative type. So he got his master's in painting and was a very talented artist and and worked on the Sony Walkman campaign. He wanted to look like a submarine and that's where the yellow and gray oh, design wow. comes from. Is, is my, my dad worked on that campaign. He was an executive at CBS as well, selling airtime. And when he wanted to have a family, he went on to uh, own restaurants and okay. he does all the books himself to this day. So he, the ledger on a daily basis, he's, he's the Greek man with a, with a single light on in his office. Who's, you know, <laughs> until 10 o'clock at night, you know, balancing what the kind books. of restaurants, fast food restaurants. Yeah. McDonald's franchises. Actually. No way. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting. So, wow. yeah, I think I was lucky to see how he was able to give so much of his time or shape his own schedule around his family. You know, he would go on the camping trips. He would drive me to trumpet practice or whatever it was. But at the same time, I also saw the other side of it too, where uh, when those tasks weren't required of him, he was on the books, on the phone, doing it you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I think that level of consistency after now 35 years of having those stores, wow, you start to think about, or I start to think about you know, the, the guys in the sushi restaurant who make the sushi perfectly and their, their lives are, is the rice perfect, right? Sure. And I, I start to think of those people who look for that level of mastery in their own businesses. And, and it's, it's an amazing experience to actually watch something that, like that over several decades. Mm, yeah. You've, you've touched on a few things that really resonate with me. One you just mentioned, which I think is mastery and and the practice and, and really having this pride in what you do. I, I, mm-hmm. I've worked in sushi restaurants, so I definitely can attest to what you're saying about yep. the, just the art of making sushi, which sushi is rice, right? right. And, and people don't even think about it. They think it's fish, but it's actually rice. Mm-hmm. And you know the way it's cooked, the way it's prepared, the way it's molded and shaped. And, and that's just a metaphor really or analogy for any type of profession or job that you have, taking it that seriously. Um, but the other thing that really stands out is this uncompromising ability to manage your own life. And you know, people say time management, but really it's self-management because you don't manage time. Time exists. It's a construct, sure, but it, it, it does exist. There's a certain amount of hours, minutes, days, weeks in, in the year 
we all have the same amount, but everyone seems to manage themselves differently. You seem to be really capable when it comes to managing your own schedule. Am I either not correct or <laughs> am I correct? And what's your secret? I can tell you that I, being a bit vulnerable, I I often think I wish I had more time, but then I think, you know, it's not that I wish I had more time. I need to do a better job of managing and prioritizing. So I'm curious how you approach managing yourself relative to the time you spend on whatever it is you're spending time. Yeah. I think everybody has a different approach to it. You know, I've spent the past two years flying all over the country, red eye flights, you know, um, Tonight, I fly to Denver. Tomorrow, I fly back. Next week, I'm in DC. When you spend that much time on airplanes, traveling, going through the motions, right? I think you really start to learn not to let yourself to dis- get distracted by the temporary. So, you know, I don't have a Facebook. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I, I don't compare myself to others. That's why I got rid of Facebook originally and a lot of these other apps is, is I found myself spending more time seeing how other people were living rather than actually spending time to have myself live the life that I want to live. Mm, and that's so powerful, that's, man. That's really what I focus on. Yeah. I mean, poof, that's some, uh, some deep stuff right there. You are focused on your life and not necessarily the kind of comparison life that a lot of people do. And, and sadly, they're comparing themselves to probably not the real life that others are living. Right. It's the literally the perfect version of their life. And I think social media has clearly some some benefits, but I think there's a lot of areas that can can compromise our, our own well-being, not least of which is the time suck that it has. But I want to dig a bit deeper with you. What else do you do? Like I relate to what you said about the flying because it almost forces you, okay, you need to be on point with your schedule. What else is your process when you think about scheduling and managing your time? One thing that I think is probably the biggest impact is that I look for jobs that don't require me to go into an office every day. I mean, my career has primarily been focused on remote work or, or work where I'm going into certain situations. And, and I feel like with technology, with video conferencing and things like that, some people need that structure of going into an office every day. And that's great for them. For me, it's, it's probably the least productive environment for me. You know, I've, even if I'm wearing my headphones, somebody's tapping you on the shoulder or whatever. And so I, I wouldn't be able to block my emails the way I do right now. I wouldn't be able to block time to just think because there's constant distraction in, in that environment. And so for me personally, I, I look for remote work. I look for work settings to where I can kind of shape a lot of these things where I can, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I can work from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and get it done and then you know sleep until nine as opposed to waking up at eight and driving an hour into the office. I feel like I probably get about 30 to 40% more productivity out of myself by doing that. Well, I mean, I can tell you that the amount of wasted time that exists within an office setting is absolutely, it's sickening actually. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's going to be studies that show, you know, you need to go to the office, you're more productive. And then there's studies that show you're not, you're not as productive. So I think it is personal. And I think there are different, like I, I'm much more like you. I go to an office and it's constant distraction. It's constant conversation, it becomes counterproductive for the very, very reason that you just shared. So I absolutely relate. And I think that adds to your your productivity. When you kind of shifting gears here for a moment, you strike me as somebody that knows what you're looking for when it comes to building a team mm. and finding the right types of leaders. You yourself have phenomenal leadership ability and have put forth, I would say, a track record that shows that when you 
take on a, a team and a, and a territory and a project, you succeed. What are some of the ways you've approached leading teams? And, and kind of when you think about whatever teams that you've led in the past, what is the type of mindset that you want to have? Or what type of leader do you want to be for your teams? Oof. I wish my teams were here to answer that question for me, right? I always look for one thing that I think is uh, across the board is I always look for a glimmer in the eye. And I think when you get eye to eye with somebody, you can see if you're really looking for it, you can see if somebody's excited, you can see if they're passionate, you can see if you're going to relate to them just based on that twinkle of the eye. Distilling it down to something a little bit more concrete, got this kind of mental checklist of 10 things when I'm interviewing somebody or I'm meeting somebody for the first time in in a work environment. Maybe I'm taking over an existing team or something like that. I really look for things like, um, do they have mastery of the current tools or, or have they worked with something similar in the past? Are they award winners? Award winners, you know, if they've won awards in the past, it's it's very correlated to whether or not they're going to win awards in the future. Mm-hmm. So I, I look for that. I look for people that can relate to structured training and pass that on to others. So Blake Maddox was on one of your shows previously, and he was talking about the importance of role play and just beating it up over and over and over again. Um, boy, how how valuable to find somebody who enjoys that kind of repetition. And I mentioned my father in the restaurant business. You want to talk about repetition. Look at a lot of the service industries where you make the burger the same way every time, right? And people eat at certain places because of that consistency, consistency right? Not because it's the best burger they've ever had, but because it's consistent. They know what they're getting. The familiarity of that. And I think if you give your teams that consistency, as I mentioned before, my childhood was very consistent. And I think if you give folks that checkpoint structured list of things to do and you keep it consistent, you don't let up on that. That's probably one of the hardest things to do because we all love to get distracted as humans. We all love to be scanning for the next, you know, deer in the forest, right? right. That we can go Shiny after. objects. In Absolutely. It's, it's built into us to want to go after something different. But if you're able to have a little bit of restraint and just keep it consistent, you end up with, uh, you end up building culture in and of itself in the fact that everybody is united around the same message, right? And I think that's, uh, boy, super valuable. Yeah. Consistency is a, uh- Wow, what an extraordinary theme to explore because I think, you know, any parenting book will tell you just how valuable it is to have a consistent schedule, whether that be the feeding schedule, the sleeping schedule, the playing schedule. And to your point, you were raised with a very consistent childhood mm-hmm. and to your parents' credit, that laid the foundation for what you've now applied. It's amazing how your your young life it plays such an instrumental role in your adult life. I think the opposite, you know, a life that's inconsistent and has a lots of fragment to it and it, no rhythm or, or rhyme or reason to it, your life can often mirror that. And unfortunately, it's a tough pattern to break. And, and so if you can establish the right kind of pattern and the right kind of consistency, it does become cultural. It does become something that people can count on. And I think humans beings, we are creatures of comfort. Generally, there's, of course, there's outliers, but I think generally people want to know what's going to happen next. And I think it comes down to expectations. This is a theme that I've talked about a lot in that if you're a customer, you're a lot more forgiving. If you were given the expectation that there might be some hiccup, you know, there might be a delay, there might be uh, this order was put in wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, at at the, at the restaurant or, or, this isn't working versus all of a sudden you're surprised. 
you're taken off guard by whatever it is that, that ends up happening. Curious, when you think about the teams that you've built, mm -hmm. and I know that talent acquisition is really important. I know that developing your team in the right way is important. Let's explore, you talked about those, those 10 questions. When you start to uncover the, the 10 questions, uh, the answers to those 10 questions, and you start to assess what the talent level is of your new team, how do you then, you know, you talked about regimented training, you talked about consistency, but how do you go about molding and shaping that team? Let's say it is an existing team that you take over. How do you go about molding and shaping that team and providing the consistency? And so what is your process for, for developing your team once you've found out kind of what the current talent level is and, and you've gotten those questions or answers to the questions that you've asked? They're awesome at what they do. And, and you want either one of those people to be under your wing. You want them to, to be whispering in your ear so that you can really be getting the inside track. Because in those particular situations, if you're coming into an existing team, you're typically the outsider and you need leadership at the top to help you build credibility within that group and constantly be reminding them that they placed you there for a reason. Right. And then you need folks within that team to be building that same kind of momentum. And then myself and those kind of trusted advocates on, on either side within that team will help me do a bit of a SWOT analysis and we'll call out maybe there's some underutilized talent on the team that just hasn't received appropriate recognition or training or can be developed. And then maybe there's some very significant weak points, whether it be environmental within the market or whether it's um, within certain talent. And we start aggressively addressing those issues very quickly so that folks can see and identify change very easily. And we celebrate those wins in a big way. We'll remind everybody what the existing team has done. I try to rarely take credit for what I've done because as a manager, as a leader, can't do it if nobody's on your team, right? So I, I need the folks who work with me, work for me to be in that kind of pool of shared meaning or, or shared end goals and to feel recognized and to feel like they're part of this family that we're building here. And I say that word family uh, deliberately because when I hire somebody, I know that I'm changing their lifestyle. I know that they're not just making this decision with me. I'm making this decision or this agreement to employ them with them and their family and right. their friends and everybody so else within their, within their circle. And so I view these decisions very seriously, whether or not to hire somebody, even when we're doing it at volume, it's a significant decision for somebody to join one of my teams. We have very uh, high standards for who we bring on and why typically take a look at 400 resumes to fill a single position. Fortunately, I've been in a position to where I, you know, I've done it enough times. You know, I think at Solar City we hired over 1,300 people onto my team and retained them at a, at a very, very high rate, which was phenomenal for us. And we we were able to retain them for a couple of reasons. One is we gave them appropriate training thanks to you and your team, and then number two is uh, they were able to make more money and have more consistency in their lives because of that structure that we placed around the processes that we had them executing on. But I think at those facets of saying family, bringing people into that organization, you know, to this day, the people who were core to my function five, six, seven, eight years ago are still part of my circle. They'll be with me for the rest of my life yeah. because I wasn't just bringing them on to my team. They were, their families were coming along with them. And, and, and I continue to recognize that to this day. Well, that's a testament to you because if you look at what you just said, there, there's a lot of things that stand out. First and foremost, identifying a leader or leaders that you can lean on 
because you're new and you, and you need the support both as, as an advocate, but also as a partner so that you could then do the SWOT analysis and look at where the team's strengths, where their weaknesses are, right? What, what threats exist, what you are working with, right? And so once you've done that, then you start to look at how do you train and develop these folks based on their current situation? How do you celebrate those that have been succeeding and give them the recognition they deserve? And then once you've done that, then it's really about, okay, let's make sure that anyone that we're, we're bringing in understands that they're joining a family, that they're, they're part of this family. And, and it's not a family that just exists sort of in the short term. This is a, a long-term proposition that as you look at your group of individuals that, com- that comprise this, this larger team, that there is this bond, this chemistry that exists with, with everyone because you, you've, you've established a culture and you're, you're, or you are in the process of establishing a culture, which is all built and based around a, a kind of family type of uh, environment, which I love that. I think that's super smart and incredibly important. And, and, and to, to recognize that as a fact, I think it, it shows that you care, that you're an empathetic leader. And it's not that you're not demanding because you are, from what I know, I mean, you're, you're not afraid. I, was, I don't know who I was talking to, but somebody said, oh yeah, when I, when, when I had my first meeting with Ted, and I hope they don't mind me sharing this, but they, at the end, he had some very specific and pointed words at the group and where they were performing. And it was not censored. It was blunt and it was very direct. And you basically said, we're not performing where we need to be. And, and I, of course, I don't know the, all the specifics, but you weren't afraid to lay it on the line and, and let somebody know that, and it was the team at this point, let them know that they needed to improve. And you even, I think, confided in the person I talked to afterwards that it wasn't necessarily directed at this individual because this individual was actually doing it, but, but you needed to share it with the entire group so that you made that clear, which again, I think that a lot of times you'll meet an empathetic leader who's not afraid to be vulnerable, who's not afraid to be, to be caring, but they're also a pushover. They're also somebody that allows people to walk over them. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned something about your father, which I thought was a really interesting insight, which is he was able to accomplish a lot with just a look. That's fascinating. Often people fly off the handle, they are loud, and they try to get something done by being a bull mm-hmm. when you don't need to be. You could be calm, have composure, be collected, and actually get something done with very few or little, you know, almost no words. One of the things that I'm fascinated by is challenges. And we we all have challenges in our lives. We all have things that have come up and have acted as at the time, something that felt like a failure or felt very negative. But to your earlier point, those often breed the most important moments in our life. What stands out in your life as a challenge or even a failure. I mean, failure is okay. I I use those terms interchangeably because some people, they don't like to identify it as a failure, but maybe it was, or or at a minimum, a, a challenge. What are some challenges that stand out? What did you do to overcome or cope and, and then how have you grown and developed since then as a result of that challenge existing? Yeah. You know, I'd say the, the biggest thing for me in the, in the past that I'd say in the past five years that really impacted me and what I 
what I recognize as possible. I was working for this company where basically investor funding got very, very tight for a certain amount of time. So we had to make um, some austerity moves and lay some people off. And then it came time for me to sit down and have the conversation. They basically said, hey, look, this is where we are financially. And it's, we don't know what to do with you because we have to make certain decisions. And at that moment, I made a decision that I never thought I'd make, which was fine, I'll do it for free. <laughs> you know, because I knew what I had been building was going to end up paying the dividends. Right. And so I just basically sat there and, and I said, look, I'll do what the CEOs did during the, uh, the recession, right? Which is go to zero salary, you know, and just pay me for the results, pay me for the benefits that you get from my work. And I think that was probably the time where I trusted in myself the most because I knew what where I was in the process. I knew where it was going to end up and I knew of the value that I could bring to the organization. And that has paid off in in spades, incredibly so. And, and I guess in many ways I'm lucky that it has. But also I, I just took that leap where I finally said, I, I think I'm at this place to where you know I can do this for six months and commit my life to it and, and finish the job that I was brought in here a year ago to do and just execute. It was scary. It was hard. It was crazy. It just didn't stop working. The process and the skills that I'd built with others on my team over time, they worked so that, so that I knew that we could start something from scratch, bootstrap it and make it, make it happen. Well, trust in yourself is, is a valuable commodity to have. And if you do, in fact, trust yourself to the level and degree that, that you clearly do, it does give you that ability to feel comfortable taking a leap of faith in a situation like you you were in. And clearly it sounds to me like it was the right decision. And I'm curious, you know, now, is there anything that scared you along the way? Is there anything you, you trust in yourself, but what might've been that little, little voice in the back of your head saying, I'm, you know, did you have that voice? Was that voice there? Or did it not exist? I was watching the, the Tony Robbins documentary or whatever on mm-hmm. Netflix and where they said, are you ever scared when you go up on stage? And he goes, um, that's the only way I can do it is where there is no uh, parachute. It's just me. My back's up against the wall. And I go up there without a script or anything else. And it's just me and the audience. And that's, that's the connection. And I felt like that was my kind of no parachute moment mm-hmm. where their failure, you know, sure, failure is an option or whatever. But at that particular moment, it was succeed or don't. There was no middle ground there. And so it was absolutely terrifying. And it was stressful and emotional. And it was one of those moments where I feel like just... Uh, it tested my grit and I was very happy with the outcome. Could I have done things better along the way? Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, those kinds of decisions impact you. They impact your family. They impact your friends, but they're some of the most real life experiences you can end up with. Yeah. You know, the parachute concept, ever since I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger, I always think of like a net in, mm-hmm. in the absence of a net. You know, if you're a trapeze artist yep. and you go without a net, I mean, there's nothing protecting you when you fail when you yep. miss the the grip, right? Yep. I, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger speech where he talks about how valuable it is to not have that safety net, to not have a backup plan, to mm-hmm. not have something to protect you should something go wrong. Because when you're forced to do something and you don't have, quote unquote, an emergency backup plan, you will perform at a much greater level 
than if you know you always have a cushion. And I thought that was a fascinating insight because, you know, he himself has had an extraordinary success. I mean, who would have thought that a, an immigrant coming to this country with no money in his pocket would become Mr. Universe, would become a governor, a movie star, all these different things and say what you want about him, whether you agree with him politically, I, that's not what this is about. Mm-hmm. The guy, when he decides to do something, regardless of what he might have in, in sort of protecting himself, he got it done. And so that's really, really fascinating to hear that you kind of had that, that similar thought and that, and that same thing with Tony Robbins, when he goes out on stage, he's going out without kind of anything. That's cool, man. That's life. That is, that is. That's life. I've got a really funny story about yeah. Arnold, by the way. Yeah, go so for I it. was biking, I do too. I'll I was biking after- in Santa Monica. Right. He loves to bike. Totally does. And he's got, you know, his little security guard and a a couple other people behind him and I'm biking and he pulls up next to me and this was actually Thanksgiving day. And I go, uh, I go, Arnold, he goes, are you doing happy Thanksgiving? And then he bikes off. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that. I'm not kidding. I have also encountered him on a bike with his two bodyguard bikers next to him. Yep. I almost hit the bodyguards. I was going like the opposite direction or kind of like almost T-boned into them. Luckily, I didn't hit Arnold or the bodyguards, but I didn't get the happy Thanksgiving. But, uh, <laughs> but that's amazing. Yeah, he he's uh, he's definitely a regular. He likes to he used to eat at the Patrick's Roadhouse, which is oh yeah, which is uh, as you know uh, down there on PCH in the Santa mm-hmm. Monica Canyon, where I where I actually went to elementary school. While we're on the subject of of, of role models, I, I guess I could count Arnold as a role model, even though I don't want to be Mister Universe and I don't necessarily want to be Governor. I do truly respect him for what he's accomplished and for his uncompromising attitude to achieve whatever it, whatever it is he sets out to achieve. And he's an environmental activist as well. That, mm-hmm. No joke, right? Yeah. Like he really, really has done incredible things and continues to do incredible things to help our one and only planet. So I, yep. I, I'm very grateful for the work that he's done there. You mentioned your father and, and your parents in our discussion today. And I would imagine that there's some role model, uh, role modeling that took place with them. You could share that, but but I'm curious, who are your role models, either your parents or otherwise, and and what have you learned from them? Yeah, absolutely. So similar to social media, I don't really follow sports. You know, I'm not like uh, you're not going to be like, hey Ted, how about those Eagles? And I'm going to know what you're talking about. But yeah. I enjoy sports for the athleticism, for the commitment, for the excitement in the games and things like that. But I don't follow teams. I don't follow stats. I don't follow those things. I more follow the individuals and yeah. I follow the results that they achieve. Right. And so I think one of those uh, folks would be Chris Mullen. I used to run into him from time to time. Um, overall pretty reserved guy. I mean, uh, known as one of the best three point shooters ever to play basketball for the Warriors. I know from personal experience, he's a good family guy. I ran into him several times. We used to have the same haircut at the same barber. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, he was just a genuinely nice guy to me and, and I, I assume to others. And he just went out there every day when he was playing ball and just banged three pointers. That's what he was known for. And so again, consistency, commitment, and, and also doing it with, um, People knew what to expect from the guy. And now he's a he's a coach for, uh, I think it's St. John's. And it, he's one of those guys where just never pops up on the radar just because he's such a solid leader that he's able to just lead by example. And, and that seems to give him an incredible amount of fulfillment. And so I have a mad amount of respect for that. Another person would be Ray Fossey. Um, he's the announcer for the Oakland A's, um, played for the A's for a while. He's a world-class catcher, hit a home run in the 89 World Series, I believe. And he is another one of those guys where 
Noah's family, great family. They used to call him the mule uh, mm-hmm. when he was playing ball because he left it all out on the field or in the locker room. I mean, he was just a, a hardcore player. And then when he got home to his wife and kids and, and, and friends, and he was just a, another standout guy. He actually is the one who taught me how to chew sunflower seeds. <laughs> uh, and, and so it was, it was pretty cool. And then also I read uh, Tom Brokaw's book about some of his life and, and what he'd accomplished. And there were some amazing parallels there, but how simple how simply he was able to achieve what he did. Uh, And by simply, I I don't mean it wasn't hard or that he cut corners or anything, but just that it seemed that he had certain landmarks within his life that he found to be significant and was very clear about explaining how those things happened and why they happened. And so I I look at that book as um, a very uh, tender reminder of, of how you can accomplish things in your life just through consistency and through essentially good thought in many ways. Yeah. I mean, there's themes there, right? You, mm-hmm. you said consistency, I think with all of them. Yeah. And you, you yourself have, I think, embodied a very consistent approach to leadership, to being a very conscious leader where, you're, where you're, you're, you're not going in haphazard and without thought. So you talked about thought and you talked about consistency. Those are two really... I think important themes that that you've touched on. And do you work to have the consistency? Is it is it something that comes naturally to you, or is it something that you have to work to have? Those two things that you just mentioned, you know, thought and consistency. I think if you combine those, you end up with method. That's how methodologies are created. And so I think it's something that I have had to work with. I don't think it's something that comes naturally to most folks but I do experience a great amount of joy when the machine is running itself. And so to get to that point to where you can go hands off a little bit and watch people fulfill their potential and you can focus on bigger picture items. um, Those are all things that, that uh, those are the reasons that drive me towards that, uh, that method. Do I even wake up at the same time every day? No, I don't. You know, do I go to bed at the same time? Nope. You know, uh, do I eat the same thing? Nope. You know, I'm not one of these uh, Steve Jobs guys that wears the same shirt every day right. or, or Zuckerberg, you know, so that I don't have to think about it. Right. You know, I am inconsistent in certain parts of my life and, and in others, I, especially in business, you know, I believe in being very focused and being very proactive and being straightforward. You know, sometimes I'll tell my teams, you're not going to like the next conversation for the next five minutes, but it's one that we have to have. So if you're one of those people who doesn't like it, Bear with me because I just told you how long it's going to last, right? There goes um, expectations too, right? Exactly right. And uh, one of our friends always laughs. He says, uh, I, I used to, we had a team that had a timing issue, right? It was constant, constant timing issues. Nothing ever happened on time. I just started announcing our meetings on webinars and things like that. I'd say, this is Ted Virgis. We're about to start the meeting because we start our meetings on time. And I would do it at, I'd say, and then I'd announce the time. It's, it's, 1201, you know? And so I do that every meeting and it kind of became a joke. People would like say it on the line, you know, if I, if it, if it was, you know, 12 o'clock on the nose, they'd say it, you know? And so all of a sudden we just kind of like humorously built in the fact that, nope, we start our meetings on time now, you know, and it's a fun way to do it. I used to also have a team that, uh, would get very distracted during meetings because they had a lot going on. They were very busy people and, and rightfully so what I did is instead of fighting it, I baked in what I called unconstructed playtime, mm-hmm. you know? And so I remember I just, you telling me yeah, about this. And yeah. so we would, you know, if we were having a two hour meeting or an hour meeting, 
I'd build in 12 minutes. I'd say, it's this time right now. You now have 12 minutes of unconstructed playtime. Do whatever you want. You can talk amongst yourselves. You can open up your laptop. You can go outside and go on the phone. You can, you can do whatever you want, but you have 12 minutes to do whatever you want during this one hour meeting. And they would come back more focused, more refreshed, feeling not as stressed because they didn't have to worry about whatever they had just been working on. And so there's, there's give and take with these folks. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We, we try to have fun with it too. You sparked something as you were talking. I'm curious what you think your teams would say about you. If they were to describe you as a leader, what would they say? So I think it really depends on who you ask because- on many of my teams, I've had very personal relationships with, with individuals. Most recently, I was described as an enigma because they said, who you are outside of work is not who you are. Like if, if we're hanging out outside of work and we know it's outside of work, you're a completely different person than who you are when we're having a meeting or we're doing X, Y, or Z, but we know what to expect out of you. You know, it's, it's, it's work at work and, and play at play. An awesome guy. I think, uh, I don't even know if he remembers this Sam Kirsch out on the East coast. He once said that I was a pit bull at certain times and a Labrador at others, you know? <laughs> so it's just, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what to, uh, I love pit bulls, but I don't know what to, you know, you know, it's tough to analyze yourself like that, right? Like I, I try to be modest about who I am. I live modestly. I try to give people the credit that they deserve who, who have made me what I am. So it's difficult for me to describe myself. I don't know. Yeah, no, but I think that 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 description and, and the way you outlined what others have said makes sense to me based on what I know and what I've observed and what I've heard. And that you you're you're not one dimensional. You're not a single type of leader that always is one way. You do change based on situation, based on individual, based on a variety of factors. And, and so maybe you're a, a bit more of a chameleon than, than kind of one singular type of, of, of leader, which I think is good because you got to lead different people in different ways. You, right. can't, you can't expect to get the same results acting and being the same way with everyone. And so I think that's smart and, and a testament to you. One of the things that you shared, which is interesting, is that you're in your life, you're not necessarily as consistent with wake up time or this schedule or that schedule. And one of the areas that I am, I'm really curious about is what rituals do you have or habits do you have? And, and not necessarily they need to be at the same time, but a habit, for example, is batching your email, mm-hmm. uh, which I do the same thing. I don't, man, the whole email concept is just crazy to me, but people that are like, <laughs> literally, they think their job is checking email all day long. Right. For those listening right now, if that's you, evaluate your email habits. And I bet you get a lot of your day back if you decide, okay, I'm going to check email these three times during the day or these two times or this one time. And everyone's different, right? Maybe you need to do it four times because it's like, it's a type of job where you do need to be really on top of your emails. And I think you have to make that decision for yourself. But that's an example of, of a habit or a ritual that you have. What other ones do you have that stand out that you would be able to share? Yeah. I mean, in the words of the late, great Michael Scott, I'm not uh, superstitious, but I am a little stitious, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I do have certain rituals, like I'll give one kind of weird example, right? And this is strange, but it, it has been consistent across many people that I met is many folks that I know do their best thinking in the shower, mm. right? And so like, I know if I get a, a good shower in, in the morning and a good shower in at night, I'm going to have more thinking time where there's zero distractions, right? Where I can just kind of stare at the wall and think about, you know, life, right? Think about business, 
rehearse some conversations in my head that could have gone better, could have gone worse. You know, these are things that I'm always thinking about. Our good friend Jason Lally in the in uh, the valley here, yeah. he always laughs at how I have a whiteboard in all of my rooms, like in the house. Like I'm always whiteboarding checklists. Oh, really? Checklist, well, you checklist. have you have multiple whiteboards. Oh yeah, everywhere. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I'm all about whiteboarding because nothing's more satisfying than knocking it off the list, right? Or checklisting and, and checking that off. Sometimes if I accomplish something and it wasn't on my checklist, I'll write it on the checklist just to check it off, right? Um, I do the same thing. You what, have what to. A feeling of, yeah, that's yeah. If you're not making checklists, Billy and I both will write down things that we've already accomplished just to it check them off. It feels so good. I do, I do, yeah, I do a big like done next to it, yep. like <laughs> in all caps, I'm yelling done. That's funny. Yeah, that way you you have to. You so, know, how many whiteboards do you have? Uh, I'll have I'll have you know one in the living room, one in the bedroom. You know, I'll, I've got whiteboards all over the place just so that I you know I'll have uh, a tablet in the car just so that I can write something down when I'm parked somewhere. It's important. It's important to have that sense of accomplishment. You've got that Navy SEAL speech on YouTube where he gave at commencement, where he says every day you should make your bed. Mm-hmm. Just so that you know that you accomplished something that day. From right. the second that you woke up, you know that you accomplished something. And that's kind of my version of that. And uh, I think that's important for everyone, regardless of what role you're in, whether you're working your way up, whether you're getting demoted, whatever, keep accomplishing those little items and keep giving yourself those checklists just so that you see material evidence of your worth. And the nice thing about whiteboarding and checklisting is you get to pick what's on that list. You get to pick what you're worth that day, right? You get to pick what you're proud of accomplishing and then put a big check mark next to it. Cool. What else, man? What else? Uh, so you got, so you got your emailing, you got your, your checklist and having whiteboards in each room. Yep. What else stands out as kind of a habit or a ritual that, that you do on a consistent basis? Yeah. You know, I'd say that I, I always try to create something as well. Not uh, that's outside of my typical purview. So, you know, whether it's writing a press release and I've never written a press release before, or whether it's um, just reading an article or, or shopping for something that I know nothing about, I'm always trying to always say um, during our meetings, some, sometimes it just a random fact will come up during one of our meetings. And I'll say, so at least if you didn't like this meeting, at least you learned something, mm-hmm, yeah. right? And maybe it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but there will be a little little tidbit in there. So I always try to keep those, uh, actually at Solar City we call them Ted's tidbits. We always had like these little nuggets of knowledge that would just kind of be floating around where it was really important for me to kind of try to learn something every day, whether it's big or small. And just kind of Continuing that growth path is is important. Yeah, expand expand yourself, expand your knowledge, and be open minded. Take uh, new experiences, new ideas, philosophies, concepts, or just fun facts for that matter, and and bring it into your life. Right, well, welcome it into your life. I think that's that's important. Yep. In a few moments, we're going to get into what I call the lightning round, which is just a series of questions where I put you in an emotional sort of situation and, and kind of ask you, what would you do in a, in a particular situation? Before mm-hmm. we get there, I, I want to explore a few other things because I do really want to capture the essence of leadership in the eyes of Ted Burgess and, and what on a day-to-day basis happens that helps you continuously reach the levels of success that you've reached because you talked about early on when you were a Boy Scout, and, and one of the things that dawned on me as you were talking was the Boy Scouts isn't too dissimilar 
to being in, in some military, being in the military, it's right? It's a paramilitary organization it, it, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah absolutely. right. So from an organizational standpoint, from a structure standpoint, from a responsibility standpoint, from a merit standpoint, from a just a lot of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if we kind of dive back into that world, not necessarily specific to Boy Scouts and, 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 and being recognized as an Eagle Scout, but more so when you look at your structure in a meeting, which you talked about, or how you optimize and get the most out of your team, what haven't we explored yet that would be valuable for our listeners? I'd say the biggest revelation that came to me was when I, I first started managing teams and I had to realize that not everybody was me. Not necessarily in a good way or a bad way, but just not everybody's like me. Not everybody thinks about things the same way. Not everybody is a six four bearded Greek man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, if you can realize that not everybody is as you and figure out that different people do things for different reasons. It might not be about money. It might not be about the environment. It might not be what's it about, right? Is it about looking good? Is it about feeling good? Is it about doing good? Everybody is going to have different motivations at their core. And frequently it doesn't take that much digging to get there. I think one of our old leaders at, at Solar City used to say, if you ask the same question three times, you'll get the real answer. You know, I think it's true that if you go three deep with somebody, you'll end up typically getting a, a very thoughtful answer about why they do what they do and what they need to get that level of satisfaction. I love that concept of going three deep. And mm-hmm. I think you and I have talked about that in the past. Absolutely. So that's a core component of, of, of how you operate. One, mm-hmm. you know, one being that treating everyone, you know, everyone's different. Situations are different, right? The, the chemistry and dynamic between the team collectively changes from team to team. You know, obviously treating folks as individuals and, and not necessarily saying that everyone's the same. You're not, not everyone's going to be the same as you. And then you're in your last point there as well. So it's like, I'm intrigued by your ability to connect with the teams in a way that will allow them to, to feel the connection, but also not necessarily overconnect. The first thing you mentioned there, have you been in a part of a team where it was overconnected and did you find that was counterproductive? I think for many people, that's in many ways scarier than not being connected at all. Some people really don't like that. Some people want to be very private with their lives and live independently of their work. And I think you have to respect those boundaries. At the same time, many people are so passionate about what they do. And hopefully everybody listening to this is as lucky to be that passionate about what they do to where they want to involve the people that they work with and their work into their everyday lives outside of what what you would normally think of working hours. So I think you have to set up a a structure where everybody is welcome. And in many cases, that means removing your biases, removing what you think about the job, removing what you think other people think about the job and providing opportunities for people to enjoy what they do. But, you know, so for example, if we were going to do events with my team, like team building activities, I do it during working hours. And I would try to plan it during times when I knew it would be a slower season or a slower day or a slower set of time so that nobody was stressed out or feeling like they should have been doing mm-hmm. something else. And typically I also did it in a way that um, everybody could see some merit. So one time we went paintballing and I made sure everybody got a chance to take a shot at me, you know? <laughs> so like, you know, if, if nothing else, they, they got to say, I, I, you know, I shot my boss with a paintball gun today, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, if nothing else, a funny story, right? 
Or they could just tell part of the story and it sounds even better. I shot my boss. Today. Have to say <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 or like fishing, right. Or whatever, like some of these activities, and this is where some of this polish comes from as well as a leader, you've got to be very careful, right? Like maybe some people aren't comfortable around even a paintball gun. You have to kind of take the pulse of the audience. Who are you really working with here? Mm. I mentioned fishing. Like I enjoy fishing. I enjoy uh, when I eat fish, I typically try to catch it myself as opposed to buying it from the store. I find that to be a sustainable way of doing it. That's just my opinion. But you know, you can't just take your team on a fishing trip. Maybe people feel bad for the fish, right? Or don't want to touch it, don't want to look at it. Maybe they get seasick. You know, there's a lot of these things that you have to take a pulse on so that if you are going to do these interpersonal activities, you can't have a monogamous team. It's not gonna it's not gonna work, right? You you need to have a team that has different opinions, different thoughts, different hobbies. And so you have to be you have to be careful with that stuff as, as a new leader, because very quickly people can start raising eyebrows and just kind of lob rocks into your plans. So that's that's another thing that I learned very quickly as well, is just uh, being politically correct and making sure that everybody feels respected, even when you have the best of intentions. It's not always possible, but you should really strive to be there. How do you take the pulse of the team? Because I think that's so valuable and, and such a great and, and important insight to to share, which is you can't go in blindly. You might like fishing. You might like paintballing, but 50% of the team might not like it at all. Mm-hmm. And so taking that temperature, understanding your team, knowing th- know the audience, really. I mean, they're, they're your audience. Right. You are the show in many ways, and they are the audience. And so they're always going to be looking at you. The decisions you make, the interactions you have, that is what's going to dictate if they're going to follow you or not. And so part of followship comes down to making sure that you're providing the experience and the you're outwardly showing them that you're, you're, you're thinking about them. And so knowing them is going to be a critical component to be able to put together something that was, be, would be meaningful for them. So how, mm-hmm. how do you take their temperature or know your team? Well, it's for them. You know, it's not for me, mm. um, these events. It's, it's, I want these events to be reflective of how they deserve to be treated not about how much fun I'm having. And so I think, you know, I, I would have these conversations about what they what they want to do. I'd do, you know, blind survey monkeys and things like that. You know, what do you want to do for a fun trip? What days work best for you? Things like that, making them non-mandatory, making sure that if you are a, a private person who doesn't want to, you know, go on a fishing, you don't have to. And, and there's no there's no hard feelings there at all. So, and that's how you get a really good idea of who's bought in and who's not in a bad way, but you start to realize, okay, who, who is a little bit more on their own Island and, and do they want to be a little bit more over here? Or maybe they're very, very comfortable over there being private and that's okay too, as long as they're performing and, and building out, uh, building out teams that are successful. So it is really, like you said, knowing your audience and knowing that you're always on stage, every conversation that you have with your team, pretend like it's being recorded. Mm-hmm. Right. So true. Yeah. And it might be. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And so I think learning that if, if you do have the opportunity to spend more time with like your human resources or people empowerment or, or whoever your organization is in charge of kind of some of those ins and outs of, of how to work with your teams, maybe that you have some kind of professional coaching or something in-house spending time with those folks and learning the do's and don'ts and learning what you can and can't ask. Those are very important questions to know ahead of time 
so that you know that you're functioning both within the law, but also within general human reason in terms of how far you want to take these interpersonal relationships within the workplace. Yeah. You, you mentioned kind of being tethered and tied with, with HR. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things at my, at my previous company that really stood out is just how important the HR business partner role is. You could, they could either be your worst enemy or your best friend. Mm-hmm. And if you take the approach that they're not there to support you or that they're out against you, you're thinking about it all wrong because they can be your best advocate. And especially if you build those relationships. And so one of the things I started thinking about as you were talking is mistakes. Like leaders, we're all going to make them. I'm curious if you could reflect and look back on your life and, and your career as a leader. So what, what mistakes stand out as you look at your own career and you think about maybe some areas that if you could go back and change it, you would. Not, not that you would change it because you learned from it, but what are some mistakes that stand out as learnings that you've had throughout your professional career? And it might be a mistake that you also observe somebody else have. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things. One would be allowing myself to emotionally be distracted by something that's temporary. Right. And we all know those situations. Maybe there's some transition happening at work and it's really frustrating for you and making your job harder or whatever. Frequently you you won't always recognize in the moment that it's temporary, but many things pass with time. And so you've really got to give yourself <laughs> so you've got to give yourself that leniency, right? Give yourself those opportunities to recognize that you shouldn't distract it by something that's that short term. And that let, enables you to save your emotional energy for things that you can focus on. And then I'd say the other big thing that I see leaders run away from or or be fearful of is when perhaps you've got somebody who's a top performer or somebody who's really good at a specific subset of their job that makes their metrics look really good or you know they're just banging on all cylinders on one small subset within the business and they do that for a really long time and then all of a sudden it comes time for promotions and and the business is expanding and they go hey I you know I'm up but they lack the other 75% because they've only got 20, that 25% subset, right? So a salesperson wanting to become a manager. Many salespeople are good at process, but they don't have the EQ to be a super successful manager. And so you have to work actively to develop them. And some people are just going to be happier and get along better with others within certain roles or, or, or tiers within the business, and their lives will indeed be better as well. But many newer managers will just say, I don't want to lose this person, so I'm going to promote them into a position that they're not qualified for because they were so good at their current job. And that is just nobody likes it when the bad kid in class gets you know, student of the month just because the teacher goes, well, it's their turn. It's like, oh, come on. Like You're rewarding bad behavior. You're not providing appropriate guidance. You're not coaching to get them to where they truly, you know, deserve that that next step. And so you're doing everybody a disservice. And I've seen it break teams apart. So we focused on that a lot on maintaining top tier talent within certain positions and developing them if they did want to move on to the next role. And then likewise, we we made a lot of mistakes where we ended up having to move people back half a step to make sure that in the future, they'd be in a better position to indeed take on that position later on, but perhaps weren't ready for it yet. Yeah. That's, that's a really powerful one. And I know something that, that, I mean, both like one, I totally agree with what you said, like time heals all wounds. So if something doesn't feel right, doesn't sit right, 
you were passed over for a promotion. You were given a crappy assignment. You, whatever it may be, like it, it's all temporary. Like time heals all wounds. And over time, things will get better. And so just just remember the the big picture. And then the other piece, <laughs> I mean, it's so true. Like you're, you're you're you see it happen all the time, but it's a textbook mistake. Is you you give somebody a promotion that's unwarranted, undeserved, and that is a recipe for a lot of animosity, frustration. It's a heartbreaker. Culture. Yeah, it's a heartbreaker. So it's just. Mm-hmm. It, it, you got to be really careful doing things like that. So yeah. that, that's 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 uh, that's interesting, man. All right, so let's let's get into the lightning round. The lightning round. Woo! Are you ready? Here we go. Boom, the, boom, boom. The lightning round. Uh, and just comes the first thing that comes to your mind. These are just it's going to be a situation or an emotional state, and some of it you, you get as personal as you want, uh, as you describe, um, as you feel comfortable. The first one is simple. It's what excites you. I love surfing. I love fishing. I love being outdoors. I love riding my bike. I love sunshine. I love good weather. But I'd say I really get driven by other people's energy levels. If somebody else is excited, I'm going to be right there with you. So I think it really is dependent upon who I'm around. And I get really excited when I'm around the right right group of people. I mean, I get fired up. I feel great. It just makes me want to be better for them, you know, and, and it, it's really fun. Well, let me, let me ask yeah. you this as a follow-up to that. Who can you think of who have you surrounded yourself with? Who can you identify as somebody that gets you real pumped up, gets you excited? One of my best friends, he's a writer in, in Los Angeles. His name's Joey DiPaolo. He's, um, he's got a couple series coming out and things like that. And we just got back from a great fishing trip up in Big Bear Lake. And you know, my goal is when I hang out with some of these guys is just come back with, with my stomach hurting from laughing so much. You know, <laughs> we, we absolutely accomplished that. Um, another person is Jesse Rains, who just brings so much passion to his businesses. He now owns a few restaurants around the area. Previously worked with us. Jimmy John's, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. He worked with us at Solar City Tesla and he was, uh, you know, just brings so much passion and energy. You know, you talk to him for about four minutes about Jimmy John's. He talks about the quality of the bread and how good the meat is and how fresh it is and how Jimmy himself goes to all the facilities to check. And it's just like, man, you can, you can be passionate about clean energy. You can be passionate about sandwiches, people like that who get excited and, and ingrain, immerse themselves in their own lives and their own businesses and things like that and want to share that excitement with others. I'm on board. Yes. Um, and, and so that's uh, that's really what I get driven by. That's so cool. One of the side benefits of, of doing this podcast is it's rekindling friendships with people like yourself and, and others yes. that I really respect. I mean, the checklist that I go through, do I admire this person? Do I respect them? Do they have something interesting to say? Do they have a great track record? And Jesse Rains obviously is somebody that, that sits just like yourself that fits that bill. So Jesse, if you're listening, I'll give you a call as well, but I would love to have you as a guest at some point. So Ted, let me ask you, what scares you? I don't want this adventure to be abbreviated. You know, like that's really what scares me is, is, um, I want to see things through and whatever that looks like, I'm, I'm really excited for it. But I think there's, I've met so many amazing people. I get to do so many amazing things. I, I just, um, I really hope that whatever seeing this through to fruition is, I hope I, I get to see it every step of the way. And I, I'm, I'm really, I'm excited about the future. I think we're at a, a tough time in our country's history. I think we're at a tough time in the world's history right now. It's a scary thought, but I can't wait to see where we end up next because I have just the best intentions going out, the best vibes going out for for the whole world. And I don't want this adventure to be abbreviated. I want to see it all the way through. You're not done yet. I know well, that. Let's go. <laughs> all right. What surprises you? What surprises me? I think I get 
Number one is LA drivers. They surprise me, but uh, I think <laughs> that's amazing. I, I think what really surprises me is is when some people aren't as passionate about what they do or don't want to jump at opportunities when you place them directly in front of them. You know, some people just don't, and I think that's okay. But it's all it's always a surprise to me when somebody can be handed something and they don't leap for whatever reason. It makes me really want to understand more and why. Um, but it's, uh, I always get a little bit, I, I almost take a step backwards sometimes when I go, wait, what, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So some people just think about life differently and that's okay too. When solar really wasn't, I mean, solar's existed as you and I both know for you know half a century. And even yeah. before that, there was some form of solar for thousands of years. I mean, sure. the sun obviously, but, <laughs> but, but even capturing the sun's energy has existed for a long time, but photovoltaic right in the last hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 70 years, whatever it may be has, it had a long time where it didn't, it was used very infrequently. Let's, let's be honest about it, but it wasn't until the, you know, when you really, when you started at REC that it started the, the mm-hmm. current path and trajectory that it's been on over the last 10 plus years. And clearly we do it and most people do it not only because it's, it's going to save the money on their electric bill, but because it's the right thing to do. It's a smart thing to do for our planet. You're obviously very passionate about the planet. Has that always, was that instilled in you at a young age or how did that passion develop? Because you did say that you realized when you went to REC that that's what you wanted to do. What was the the light bulb or the switch that that turned? Was it was it just got heightened or did it did it really become clear? How, how did your passion evolve? Yeah, honestly, I thought that I was going to go into Silicon Valley. I thought I was going to go work for a semi-business or, or something like that. I saw the machine turning and I didn't see where I was going to be able to leave a fingerprint, right? And that's all I, I was really looking for is, um, and I realized that when when somebody is able to offset and, and caused, cause-based businesses, similar to why so many you know wealthy people are really involved in charity work and very passionate about charity work. I wanted to be able to just leave a little fingerprint of of some good deeds along the way. And in fact, in college, I thought that I was probably going to end up working for an oil company, but on the environmental side in mm-hmm. terms of remediation and things like that. So I was very fortunate that uh, REC was based in San Luis Obispo where I went to college. And so I was able to just essentially walk in the front door, which was, you know, sometimes I say I, I just got lucky. It's one of those opportunities where just kind of serendipity led us together. And, and once I realized how passionate people were and how everybody was unified around that general almost good deed mm-hmm. while also doing something that financially made sense for homeowners, for businesses, and for ourselves as a business, that's where I just saw this amalgamation of success. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not too dissimilar than you. I think maybe I, I even more so relished in the exposure that I had to other people. And sometimes it was the homeowner who was more passionate than, than even I was at first. Mm-hmm. I've always, of course, been I'm in favor of making sure we don't pollute our air and, right. and I care about the planet. I didn't know I would have a career trajectory that led me to also have that be a, a cor- really a cornerstone of, of the work that I do. But but man, did I feed off that energy much like you do when you when you're around passionate people? When you're around it, when you're exposed to it, it just gives you this new excitement in life for what you're doing. And it, in many ways, for me anyway, it validated like, oh wow, this is like not only am I doing something that's lucrative, I can make money, but 
equally, if not more importantly, it's the right thing to do. I could feel good about it, which Mm -hmm. is a powerful thing to say. So I'm going to ask you a question right now. If you don't feel comfortable asking, you don't need to, but I was interested in this. If you feel comfortable sharing, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh man, asking the bearded bearded six yeah, four guy, we, real we, we all right, all cry, right. man. Um, well, I thought it was going to be on the today's show, but uh, you you got me over <laughs> overcoming that pretty quickly. But no, I, I think empathetic <laughs> le- leaders, you know, we have to be in tune with people's emotions, right? And so you hear where people came from, and and sometimes it's tough. It's important to understanding where they're going and why they make certain decisions. And, and you hear really substantial human stories about your employees and, and active real time. Sometimes things are happening to them while they're, they're working for you. So both positive and negative experiences will, will choke me up sometimes. Most recently, I, I think one that came to mind was uh, when I saw like a true, truly beautiful kind of act of service. I think I mentioned Jason Lally earlier. He was running a benefit for the VA hospital up the road here in LA. And it was uh, with a variety of amateur singers who were just phenomenal. And his daughter, his whole family was there since he was running the benefit. And his daughter went up there and sang a song that that could be construed as a, you know, pro-environment. It was, it was a beautiful song from Pocahontas, actually. She stood up there with a microphone in her hand. She's, you know, probably about 12 years old or so. And she just belted it out. And it was, it was beautiful. He was choked up. I was choked mm. up. The veterans were loving it. It was a truly wonderful, innocent, or cost-effective way to number one, you know, honor our veterans and, and do something nice for them. Number two, amazing to watch someone who I've worked with for a long time and watch some one of his family members accomplish something that was so wonderful. I mean, that, that choked us both up. It was, yeah. it was truly beautiful. Well, mu- music itself is a is a emotive medium. It, it really captures the emotion. And I think in, in the context of what you just shared, it sounds like it was a, an emotional setting to begin with. And so transitioning into my next question is, is really about books, mm. which leaders are readers. Most leaders, if not all leaders that I know, are they have an assembly of books that have really been important threads in their life that mm-hmm. have helped define and, and and give them either validation in what they're doing or direction in what they should be doing. Yep. Curious what books or book stands out as the one that you've recommended the most to those that you want to share that wisdom with. So I'd say without a doubt, my most read book that I, I read when you know I'm on an airplane or whatever, I will consistently read East of Eden by Steinbeck. Wow. Um, that story covers the full gamut of familial interactions, human emotion, the scenery that he paints is beautiful. And so I'll just read that book over and over and over again. If that was my desert island book, that, mm-hmm. that would be it. The book that I actually give, so uh, you know, I don't have as much time to read as I'd obviously like. And so I will frequently hand out to my team, a, it's a dictation from actually a graduation speech, I believe, uh, with David Foster Wallace. And it's called This Is Water. And it's it's not too long. It's just a couple words per page for, you know, 40 or 50 pages, but it's meant to put everything a little bit into perspective and uh, basically just giving away a couple of lines within the book. He tells a story about a couple of fish swimming upstream and an older fish comes swimming back down the other way and goes, morning boys, how's the water? And the two fish look at each, two younger fish look at each other and go, what the hell is water? (laughs) You know, and just kind of putting everything into perspective, right? Like 
what what are we all really doing here? You know, look look around every once in a while and recognize what's what's the big picture. What are you actually in? What are you actually doing? I enjoy that that book as a from a leadership standpoint. I love it, man. Mm-hmm. I haven't I have not read that, but uh, I would love to uh, maybe get a get my hands on a copy. Absolutely, and, yeah. I'll, I'll kick you one. Thanks, man. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Who has been the most inspirational person in your life, and why? Without a doubt, when we were working with with Hayes and team, you know Hayes is is an inc- uh, Hayes Bernard is an incredibly inspirational leader, uh, currently a CEO of uh, Lone Pal, and I think what he was able to do with large groups of people to get them unified around singular visions um, is no small feat, and I, I think he did it incredibly effectively uh, within a very short amount of time. Watching some folks go from from a negative outlook to a positive outlook, um, and his ability to get them to change overnight unmatched. So, and I think it comes down to trust. He trusts in other people with a huge amount of uh, a commitment. I'm, I'm a big advocate. He truly is a master. I mean, he, he was the one that recruited me along with Paul Stefan over to solar city and we had dinner and it was after that dinner, he painted the vision of where solar city was going, including the potential Tesla merger. And, and, you know, at that point it wasn't even really talked about. It was more him vision casting and, and talking about what the possibilities are, but just he's he's got this incredible gift and energy that he exudes that allows him to orate and 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 kind of share and describe things in a very passionate and heartfelt way that I think resonated with thousands of people at Solar City mm-hmm. and really helped propel the success that we had, especially in those those crucial years up to and leading into the transition and, and, and merger and, and acquisition of uh, a solar city into Tesla. So very inspirational guy. So if you could, if this is possible, you could spend an hour with anyone, and I mean anyone living or dead, who would you spend it with and why? You can go so far so far back with that, right? That's right. Uh, I'd probably get the most perspective about our, our world is changing so quickly now that I think who I'd probably pick is somebody like John Chambers, the former CEO of uh, Cisco. He's almost precognitive nature about his ability to see where the markets are going, uh, where companies should go. I mean, he's one of those guys that predicted the recession with with a very high level of certainty, started protecting company assets early, uh, well before there were any any other signs. And you watch him on CNBC or these other shows, even today, uh, now that he's kind of you know taking a back seat and... and um, his ability to really uh, quickly, like we were talking before about if you join a new company, distilling down the information and finding the true messaging. I mean, John Chambers would be absolutely ma- I mean, magnificent to listen to for an hour. I love it. I love it. And I love that you're, you're really thinking about it from a perspective of growth and learning and, and understanding the way he's thinking, which can help you, of course, in your own life. Ted, if you were given the chance to talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? Let's see. I was in college. I I I, I was um, I was right in the swing of it. You know, I was I was really kind of figuring it out at twenty, I think. And I'd probably tell myself to pivot more or be more comfortable with pivoting and not not let it emotionally affect me so much. If a pivot's going to happen, let it happen without worrying about it because you know you'll figure it out. Lean into the pivot. Lean into it absolutely and enjoy it more. I think enjoyment. Uh, it's easy to look back and go, ah, oh, golly, I, I worried too much. But I think the more you live, the more you realize that worrying doesn't change anything. So I tell myself to to lean into it and enjoy the process and um, just do what I do and just just let things happen. 
Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, I think all too often we we do tend to put ourselves in a place of worry and a place of friction almost, kind of overthinking, overanalyzing, concocting these a lot of times false notions of what is instead of accepting and being open and being present in the current state and really leaning into it. And that's a perfect lead. And the answer really perfectly leads into my next question was, which is, do you have any regrets in life? If so, what are they? When I was younger and entering the workforce, I don't think I fully understood how small the world really is uh, in terms of, of interpersonal relationships. And I wish I had forged earlier on in my career, deeper relationships with folks um, that have kind of been along the process with me, because now I just kind of know of people and they know of me. And we, we might've had the opportunity to learn a lot more from each other earlier on and accelerate each other earlier on as well. And the other thing too, that I constantly am, am struggling with now is how to give back more. I, I do believe that charity, whether that be time or, or whatever you can give, I do regret not getting involved with organizations earlier to start giving back because I feel like I've met so many amazing people now in my life when I feel like I have the time or, or, or resources to be involved. I wish I had started that process earlier so that I could have started learning more and meeting more people who were, were like-minded around supporting these causes. Mm, I share that with you. I, I really wish that I had been more active and now I have the desire to be more active because mm-hmm. I mean, clearly- we have a lot of life left. There's the, the, the story is still being written. We don't need to close the book by any stretch. And so we, we can we can create that. And so I'll, I'll share that as a very um, similar feeling that I have is if I'm being super blunt, I've been a bit selfish and, and you know, not not excusing it, nor am I criticizing myself. It's just the reality. I've started a family, got married, been dedicated to my job and being frank, at the expense of giving back. And not to say that's an excuse because it really, I mean, there's a lot of people that have families, that have kids, that have jobs that also give back. So um, I just need to be doing more. I think a lot of that too, though, is is what we've experienced in the past, right? Is like the recession, for example. I think it hit a lot of us and kind of caused us to kind of clinch down a little bit, really kind of go inside of ourselves more, which Economists will tell you that's the exact opposite you should do when you can is to go out there and start start executing when everybody else is clinching down, right? So I think a lot of that's environmental and I, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing how the next few years turn out in terms of folks kind of opening up a little bit more. It feels like folks are, are really kind of getting centered around these causes now. Yeah. I mean, watch the crowd go in the opposite direction if you can. That's a, <laughs> that's a, a good advice. Speaking of advice, what advice would you give someone who's just starting out in their journey as a leader? Grab a good mentor, ASAP, and have regular check-ins. I think regularity of check-ins is very important. Getting, even if it's not super itinerary driven, having somebody that you can continue to bounce ideas with off of uh, is, is very important. And I was talking to one person one time and I said, you know, I don't know if I want to make the jump from sales into leadership. I don't, you know, I'm really enjoying kind of this uh, coin operated business that I'm running where I, I put a certain amount of effort in, I get a certain amount of money out. And I, I don't really know about managing because so much of your success is dependent upon others at that point. And they said, if you just be yourself, people will likely follow you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. If you're being selected or tapped to be a leader, 
that's probably the same advice that I can give you is just be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. Yeah. Nobody wants to follow a fake or a phony. They want the real deal. They want the real person. They want the human being Mm -hmm. that was tapped on the shoulder to lead. That person obviously has impressed somebody enough to be given the opportunity to lead, have the confidence that you're the right person and that you could just be yourself. You don't need to be something you're not. Right. What a fascinating story. You have so much wisdom and your career is, I feel like had so many highlights to to share and so many amazing things that you've learned from that I hope the audience has learned from. But what maybe have they not learned yet that would surprise them about Ted Virgis? Probably with the the modesty that I live, like in my day to day, you know, I don't uh I'm not a really flashy guy out and about or anything like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think naturally I'm a little bit more of an introvert. And I don't think that always comes out when you're, when you're a manager um, or when you're an executive or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I am somewhat, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time just by myself reading, thinking, watching TV, you know, um, uh, independent hobbies as opposed to, to group group sports, right? I, I surf where you're in the water, bobbing around by yourself a lot of the time, you know? Um, uh, so I think that is kind of an interesting thing where I'm, I, I do podcasts, I film shows, you know, I, I go and speak in front of large groups of people, but when I'm not doing that, I spend a lot of time by myself and kind of reflecting internally. I'm not the person who constantly needs to be on their phone or broadcasting messaging or anything like that. So it's kind of interesting. Thank you for sharing. And and I think it is fascinating. Do you, do you feel comfortable in large groups or or uncomfortable? Uh, What, what is your, cause I, there's introverts all have Mm -hmm. one. I don't, I don't relate because I'm an extrovert. Right. But a part of me does relate because I do go through times like, I just don't want to get in a conversation or I'm, I'm more, I just don't have the desire to be the extrovert that I normally am. Curious, and, and some introverts are like, they're actually really opposed to being in environments that are large groups or, but there's everything in between. So like, where do you sit in that realm? I look at everything as, as almost like an exercise in, in, in an experience, right? And uh, even this podcast is one. I, I'm I'm pretty private guy. I don't typically talk a whole lot about myself. I don't try to broadcast where I'm from, who my parents are, or anything like that. And so, you know, I think it's um, I, I very much am comfortable in front of large groups. I do enjoy speaking. I do enjoy. Uh, being on camera, but I typically enjoy talking about other people mm-hmm. or talking about a product. So I think I lean more towards sharing my observations as opposed to talking about myself. Yeah, uh, which is kind of interesting. But this has been a this has been a, a fun introspective exercise. So hopefully, learning about me is is interesting for you guys as well because I don't I'm, I'm not really that used to it. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's thank you for being vulnerable and sharing. I think that's uh, it's an interesting insight in and of itself, which is sometimes. You know, you might do something and you said like an experience, get out of your comfort zone a little bit, do something that you may not be as used to doing, which I think does make us better. I think if you're not getting out of your comfort zone regularly, you're not growing. And I think sometimes it's the most valuable thing we could do is put ourselves in situations that may be unorthodox or not the normal state that we're used to. So in closing, uh, I, I want to give you the opportunity to share anything that we haven't discussed yet, anything that you think would be valuable for the listeners or anything just generally. What what, what haven't we talked about that you know you want to talk about now or, or just any closing words from Ted? 
Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I never thought that this would have come up when when we were just chatting on the phone the other day, but it's been an amazing experience. And hopefully your listeners enjoy and learn a, a little something about me or learn a little something about an industry they didn't know about before, whether that be solar or energy storage or HVAC. If anybody has any follow-up questions, they you know feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always available on there, even though I don't do much much other social media. But uh, really grateful for the opportunity. I think Inside Out is um, really giving people the opportunity to listen to proven leaders like Toby Corey, one of the best in in the world at what he does, and giving them the opportunity to to hear about people that are different from them, hear about people that come from a variety of backgrounds and experiences. And I think there's nothing more valuable than learning how people make decisions and learning where those decisions come from and how different paths to decision-making end up with the same net result, which is massive amounts of success and coming from places of gratitude and wanting to give back. So super grateful for the opportunity to be one of those folks that you selected and being on the show today. So thank you so much. Well, I can tell you that I feel just so grateful that you could be on the show, that you're local so we could do it in person and look at each other in the eyes. I don't get this opportunity very often because a lot of the recordings that I do are remote. So um, I I didn't even realize that you you were back down here, but clearly uh, we have some catching up to do over beers as well. Absolutely. And uh, hey man, thank you so much, Ted. You are a consummate professional. You bring so many unique traits, characteristics, and talents to wherever you're at, uh, whether it be your, your, your current role or the roles that you've had in the past, um, you have a unique blend. Uh, and when I say that, what I mean is often you'll get leaders that, that fit one mold. They're the charismatic outgoing leader or the introvert and not like you bring a, an interesting mold of like thinking strategic, thinking actually giving really thoughtful and, and careful consideration to how you go about things but not at the expense of the human beings. You don't forget that human element. So it's like, when I think of like personality profiles, you may have that like sort of engineering type brain where you're hardwired to think about things in a critical fashion, but you have that more people side, it doesn't get left behind. You you said yourself, you're not opposed to being in front of a room or being involved. And so that human connection and that empathetic side as well. So um, it's a unique blend. And I think it's, it's clearly afforded you a lot of the, 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 the opportunities that you've had, the success that you've had. And I feel grateful that you're able to share some of the insights that you've had as it relates to your career and your life. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Billy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. Insight out.